Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I think it's fair to say that when most of you hear about fracking, the first thing that comes to mind is the potential environmental damage. This has been a big story over the past several years. What you might not think about is how fracking is changing the geopolitics of the world, how it's helping America towards energy independence, which in a counterfactual way may not be a good thing. But at the same time, it's also impacting Saudi Arabia and Russia in ways that affect power politics throughout the world. And it's not only geopolitics. The fracking industry in Texas, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and New Mexico is impacting politics right here at home. Just ask candidates running in those states. Add to this the importance of the industry's deep symbiotic ties to Wall Street, plus a cast of characters in the fracking business that could easily produce a modern-day giant or Dallas. Bringing all of this together is my guest, Bethany McLean. Bethany McLean is the co-author of the bestseller, The Smartest Guys in the Room, about the Enron scandal. She's the author of All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis, and most recently, her book, Shaky Ground, gave us insight into the U.S. mortgage business. She's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and it is my pleasure to welcome Bethany McLean here to Radio Who, What, Why, to talk about Saudi America the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. Bethany, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we begin, let's talk a little bit about what fracking is. Explain it in in its most basic terms to our listeners. So fracking, as it has come to be known, and that's not the word the industry likes for it, is a combination of, instead of drilling a well as old school drilling was done, you drill horizontally and you use um, an injected mixture of water, sand, and chemicals in order to basically force oil and gas up through the ground um, um, and from, from rock that was never meant to or never thought that it could yield oil and gas. And this practice, although it has certainly become much bigger now, and we'll talk about the reasons why, it's been around for a long time. I mean, I think that the earliest examples of this were happening back in the mid-50s, early 60s. Yes, it has been around for a very long time. People have tried multiple things in an attempt to get oil and gas out of the ground in places that we knew it was, but the ground uh, wouldn't yield it. The problem was always that the wells wouldn't produce enough to be viable. And so this really changed. A guy named George Mitchell is widely regarded as the kind of technological pioneer here who figured out the mixture that made it work to make a well produce enough um, gas, gas in that case to make it viable. And the viability of it really is an economic question even to this day because one of the things that that you spend a lot of time on in Saudi America is the fact that this is such an expensive process, so capital intensive. I think that's something that is not well understood about this industry. When people think about controversy over fracking, they think environmental controversy. And there's a financial controversy as well that is less well understood. I came to believe that the key ingredient in fracking wasn't so much chemicals as it was capital. Because this is such an expensive proposition, it requires billions upon billions of dollars in in capital. And all of that, it's very strange because we're talking at the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. And the availability of that capital is actually a direct result of the financial crisis in a very strange way. 
because the Federal Reserve cut interest rates so dramatically in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis to reboot the economy, that actually helped spur fracking because these companies were able to borrow money at, 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 low, at low interest rates. Um, so this availability of capital is, is a key question about the future of fracking. Why is it so capital intensive? But more specifically, why has Wall Street been so willing to pour more and more money into it? Well, the second one is a more complicated question than the first, so I'll start with the first one. It is so expensive because it's, this is an expensive process to steer a drill bit a mile down in the ground and sometimes up to three, four miles horizontally, um, and all the, the, the ingredients that go into it, especially the millions of tons of sand that go into it, cost money. But the other reason it's so expensive is that unlike a vertical well, uh, a fracked well shows huge declines um, in year two, meaning it produces is far less gas or oil than it did in year one. So it's not as if you drill the well and it keeps producing and there you go. You drill the well and it dries up. And so in order to keep producing, you have to drill another well. And so you get on this treadmill of constantly, um, constant new reinvestment that's required just to hold your production flat. The reason why Wall Street has been willing to finance this so far is it boils down to a few things. One is a lack of other areas in, in our stagnant worldwide economy. Fracking is one of the few areas that's shown growth. And so these companies have often been valued off things like the number of acres they own or the amount of oil and gas they're producing, not off profits. It's a little bit reminiscent of the first dot-com boom when you may remember that companies were valued as a multiple of eyeballs, right? <laughs> when there are not traditional measures of profits, um, Wall Street looks to non-traditional measures. Um, and so people have been able to make, make money, and Wall Street's been able to make a lot of money by arranging financing for, 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 these, for these companies. And it's, I think, always a really important lesson to remember about Wall Street, that Wall Street can make a lot of money, even when the industry it's financing does not make money. And a lot of that money has come from fees because fracking, as far as the oil side of it is concerned, has not really been a profitable exercise. Right. So I looked at one company that I profile pretty extensively in my book, um, a guy named Aubrey McClendon, who was in some ways one of the pioneers of fracking, not on the technological side, but because he really pioneered the capital raising. He was the evangelist for fracking who went around the globe and convinced investors to give him billions of dollars. And I um, calculated that over the years from 2001 to 2012, Chesapeake Energy, his company, raised $15 billion in debt, $16 billion in equity, and paid Wall Street over a billion dollars in fees. And that's just one company. The other part of fracking really involves natural gas. That's been a little more successful as an enterprise. So it's it's interesting. Nat, fracking started with natural gas, and even when we were fracking for natural gas, there was a belief that oil would never work. And then entrepreneurs, um, chief among them a company called EOG, which ironically enough, is, was spun out of the old Enron, um, made, it, made it work. But there's really a question these days um, um, as to which one works better, and the decline rates for natural gas wells are actually far less steep than they are for fracked oil wells. And so there's a belief, even among skeptics of this industry, that natural gas is closer to making economic sense than oil ever will be. 
talk a little bit about the geopolitics of this and the fact that we hear so much about all the oil and gas that we're producing here in America, all this talk about energy independence. It has an impact in terms of, of potential renewables, but it also has, as you talk about, a geopolitical impact in terms of, of the effect that it's had on Saudi Arabia and Russia to other big energy producers. So it's another really important um, and not so well understood part of the story. You may have seen the headlines last week that the U.S. became the biggest oil producer in the world ahead of Saudi Arabia and Russia for the first time since the 1970s. And that's in large part due to fracking. An economist I spoke to for my book said that fracking was one of the top five things reshaping geopolitics. You know, we don't think about energy as much these days as perhaps we used to, but it's still a critical ingredient in human life, right? World wars have been won and lost over who had access to to how much energy, and it's just as critical today as it as it ever was. So you can see the impact of of the amount of oil the U.S. is producing in in various ways, and then there are other ways in which people speculate the impact will show up. One way you can see it is the state of Saudi Arabia today, um, which is which is struggling. We've seen unprecedented upheaval with the young Prince Mohammed bin Salman essentially staging a palace coup and um, taking over, and, and he's got a plan to wean the, company, the country off oil because he, he has to. The country can't survive without oil prices around, most estimates have it around 80 to $90 a barrel, and we're significantly below that now in large part due to the amount of oil the U.S. is producing. Um, there's a belief that the natural gas the U.S. is producing will eventually enable us in Europe more leverage with, with Russia, and the reason for that is that Europe depends on Russian Russian gas to for a great majority of its natural gas supply, and the idea is that if you can import U.S. natural gas, that offers Europe an alternative to Russian gas and allows them some leverage in negotiations where previously they've, they've had none. Um, this is for, this is further off, but but people speculate that that could be the ultimate outcome of the U.S. being such a prolific producer of natural gas. Why isn't the price of oil, at least in Saudi Arabia, being propped up by the fact that so much of it goes to China? Well, so it. it only in retrospect can people even begin to understand what influences the global price of oil. It's it's one of the um, humbling things about working on this book was the recognition that everybody who's attempted to predict the, the future of fracking, as well as everybody who's ever attempted to predict oil prices, has been wrong. <laughs> and it's hard to understand, even, even now, um, why oil, oil prices have plunged so dramatically. They were well above $100 a barrel through um, until 2014, in large part Due to, due to Chinese demand. But part of it is is production coming from the U.S. The remarkable growth in U.S. production um, is offsetting some of the supply constraints that you might otherwise see. All of this, of course, is happening at the same time that there's greater and greater focus on renewables. Talk a little bit about this nexus. Well, one of the things that I, I came to believe in the course of working on this book was that for us to beat our chests proudly about American energy independence because we're producing so much oil is to take pride in the world as it is and perhaps render us losers in the world as it's going to be. And what I mean by that is I was very surprised to 
talk to really smart financial types and find that they are spending a lot of time, a lot of brain power trying to figure out when the age of renewables is going to be here. And that's as hard to predict as the future of oil. It depends on so many factors from, you know, the rate of improvement in battery technology to 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 cost cost efficiencies and solar, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody thinks it's coming. And and once it comes, the price of oil will go into a secular decline and it will never recover. And so we don't even have to be at the end of the oil age. We just have to see that the end is coming. And I I, I think it would be unfortunate if we were to stop paying attention to renewables and, and if we were to stop paying attention to renewables um, and, or, and, and, and focus instead, you know, sort of myopically on the current day's production of oil and gas. There's also the impact of globalization and the fact that it is harder for the U.S. to have as much influence as it used to in terms of setting the price of oil. Right. So that's one of the reasons I came to believe that this whole concept of energy independence was flawed, if not fraudulent in a way, because the idea that we can turn the clock back to the 1970s when America could control the price of a barrel of oil is absurd. The price of a barrel of oil is set on the global market by events beyond anybody's control. And we won't regain that control no matter how much oil we're we're producing. American drivers, American consumers are going to pay for their oil based on events in Libya, Nigeria, the Middle East, elsewhere, elsewhere in the globe. And we we can't turn the clock back. Talk a little bit about Aubrey McClendon. You mentioned him earlier. And and he was really a visionary in in a way, both good and bad, with respect to understanding what was happening with fracking. Yes, I came. I was always fascinated by Aubrey McClendon for years before I embarked upon this book because I thought he was—he's one of those larger-than-life characters who comes along so often in the business world and really proves that old adage: "Truth is stranger than fiction." Because you really—you couldn't invent a character like like Aubrey, who was just as fearless as he was reckless and had these great dreams of of, of the shale revolution and America's ability to produce natural gas, really, really changing the world. Um, but he was also a guy who embraced an enormous amount of risk and lost a lot of money, other people's money um, and his own. And I came to see him as emblematic of the American fracking revolution in, in, in some ways. He was both the good side of the industry, the passion, the daring, the entrepreneurship, the desire to change the world, and the, the bad side, which was kind of a total inability to manage risk and just unbridled um, demand for more, 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 more. Talk about McClendon's death, which still is is shrouded in mystery in some ways. Yes, he'd been indicted the day before for um, antitrust um, 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 accusations by the Justice Department, and the criminal um, indictment would have made him lose everything. And the, that morning, he he was driving at a high speed, um, seemed to make no effort to avoid the collision, and hit a concrete bridge going going at, a, I think, 80 miles an hour. And there will always be speculation that it was suicide, although the police department ultimately ruled it an accident because there was no proof that it was suicide. But the captain of the Oklahoma City Police Department said, we'll, we'll never know 100% what, what happened. And it was interesting because McClendon's death came in the spring of 2016 when it looked like the fracking revolution might be over. Um, Saudi Arabia had in some people's view, tried to reestablish control of the oil market by refusing to to cut production, which sent prices plummeting. 
Um, and the idea was this would drive U.S. fracking companies, which are already financially precarious, out of business. And, and it was. Some 150 U.S. companies went bankrupt. Uh, U.S. production fell by about a million, a million barrels. Of, um, um, and so it really looked like when, when McClendon's death came that it was kind of the punctuation mark underscoring the end of this industry. But it wasn't. What is it that caused it to make a comeback? So if you talk to believers, they'll cite a couple of things. They'll say that technological improvements are making it more economic to get fracked oil and natural gas out of the ground. And people look to the Permian Basin, which is this well-known area of Texas and New Mexico. It's been producing oil for a century. But everybody sort of believed it was tapped out and that most of the wells in the Permian were, were, were done. Um, and when fracking came to the Permian, suddenly there was this explosion again of production from from this from this region and it appears that the cost structure in the Permian is better than than other places in other words companies with good land there are a lot closer to making money than companies that have that have operated um, elsewhere but the real reason the industry came back was that the capital didn't go away Wall Street was still there private equity firms have been pouring immense amounts of money into this into this industry um, supporting young teams of drillers who are going out and you know, building their own companies and that's really why the industry didn't go away, is that the capital hasn't, hasn't dried up. In looking at the broader economic framework, and as you mentioned earlier, we're you know, marking this 10th anniversary of, of the crash, what should we be worried about, if anything, with respect to all the capital that is currently invested in fracking? Well, I think there are two big worries about this. One is that um, a lot of pension funds who have not been able to earn a return in this super low um, interest rate environment have put money into riskier assets, namely private equity funds, sometimes hedge funds that invest in the debt of, of companies, including fracking companies. And if the industry doesn't pan out as everyone expects, that will put even more pressure on pension plans than they are already under to be able to pay. Um, retirees. But I think the other bigger issue is it's almost more of an ex existential one in the sense that we don't, we don't, energy isn't front and center in most of our minds anymore, particularly if you live in an urban environment. It's just something you take for granted. But it is critically important in many areas of, of modern life. I mean, your iPhone wouldn't work with, without it. Your electric car depends on electricity, generally from natural gas. Um, and the, the real question to me is how much oil and natural gas would we be producing if the capital dried up? If the financial environment turned less forgiving, what would happen to our to our fracking revolution? And I think understanding that it's weaker than, than everyone thinks and that this surplus of American oil and gas might not be here to stay is really important because it's the future of our nation in many ways. And is it a zero-sum game with respect to capital? Is this money that might otherwise be going into renewables? It is to some extent, although there is still money going into renewables, but most experts believe we've fallen behind China in the race to develop renewables, and I think some component of that is the diversion of capital into oil and gas and away from, and away from renewables, and I think that's really, really short-sighted. What do you think McClendon would think of where the business is today if he was still around? That's a really good question. I would guess he would be celebratory for everything that it's done to to change change the world. He was not one to <laughs> 
worry about enriching himself at the expense of his shareholders or to worry about mammoth debt loads and negative cash flow, which is what characterizes the industry. So it's hard for me to argue that those things would um, would phase him today. Um, but there's one thing that he might be a little bit distraught about and that and that he I actually think in the end he was right about. He was a huge evangelist for natural gas. He believed that we should be trying to convert our transportation infrastructure and as much as possible to natural gas because we really do have a, a, a very long supply of very cheap natural gas. The situation isn't as clear with oil. And I think he might be distraught that we had made so little progress on that part of his vision. And what does this mean for the Saudis at the moment? Um, you know, the recent the, the recent pulling of their potential IPO for Aramco. Where does this leave the Saudis? All of this. I think not in a good place, and I think that's a really scary issue um, um, for coming years. The the low oil prices put immense pressure on Saudi Arabia, not because it costs them much to get a barrel of oil from the ground. It doesn't. They're probably it's probably the cheapest place in the world to get oil from the ground. But Saudi Arabia has built up a mammoth public spending infrastructure uh, that requires um, the latest n- numbers I've seen are anywhere from eighty to ninety dollars a barrel oil in order to support it. It's this interesting concept known as the fiscal break even. What does it take a uh, oil dependent nation um, in order Order to support its population, what 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 price for, for a barrel of oil does it does it need? And the price for Saudi Arabia is higher than the current price of oil, and has been for a long time. And the kingdom has been bleeding through um, its reserves, and so it was supposed to take its national oil company, Aramco Public Saudi Arabia, just recently announced that wasn't going to happen, and the money from Aramco was going to be used to invest in this Vision 2030, which was Mohammed bin Salman's grand plan to wean the state from its dependence. On, um, on oil and reshape the economy. It's really unclear what, what happens now. Um, and I don't think increased instability in Saudi Arabia is a good thing for America, no matter how you argue it. And finally, Bethany, what's the other thing that, that we should be watching for in terms of the geopolitics of this, in terms of, of the power of fracking? Well, I think I think we're seeing one aspect of it play out now, which is that it's a two-way street. So China has been importing our oil, and you've seen China occasionally threaten to push back against Trump's new tariffs by um, by by taxing oil imports. And so when you export, it's a and import, it's a two-way street, right? <laughs> and so it's 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 made the world a little bit more complicated. But I think what I what I'm what I really think is important is um, any potential leverage with Russia in Europe. And so keeping a close eye on the imports of natural gas to to Europe on when that might happen, what the cost will be, um, what are factors that may get in the way. But that's, um, that's something that could really affect the world in, in coming years. Bethany McLean, her book is Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you so much for the wonderful questions and the interest. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.